So if you want to turn to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, we got into a little bit of chapter 2 in our first session, uh, but we're going to start in verse 3 uh, tonight. And so in, in chapter 1, the apostle John began and he presented a, a doctrinal test, <coughs> excuse me, a doctrinal test of genuine salvation. And this first part of chapter 2 that we're going to be looking at tonight is somewhat piggybacking off of chapter 1 with its emphasis on living a life that is evident and it's authentic uh, and shows that you're a true believer. And so, whereas chapter 1 presented more of a doctrinal test, chapter 2 focuses more on the moral test of genuine fellowship. And there are two aspects to the moral test test. The first is obedience. The second is love. And so uh, when we look in chapter 5, we're going to see that there's a subjective assurance of salvation that comes through the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John writes in John chapter 5, or 1 John chapter 5, the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. But in chapter 2, John indicates that the external test of obedience and love demonstrate to those around us that our, our, our salvation is genuine, and that is love and obedience. So let's just jump into it. First, first John chapter 2, we're going to begin verse, reading in verse 3, and we'll read through verse 6. He says, this is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. And so... The first part of this that I want us to see tonight is that we have to walk in obedience as a test of true fellowship with God. We have to walk in obedience as a test of true fellowship with God. And so that's the first aspect of the moral test, is obedience. And notice the repetition that John uses here. He uses the word know and keep. These are the English words, uh, but these emphasize that those who are genuine Christians, those who have truly experienced a life changed by Christ demonstrated by a habit of obedience to his word. And so John uses these two words, and I'm going to give you the Greek words. Um, the first one is ginosko, ginosko, which means I know. And he uses this about 40 times in this epistle. And then the word tepeo or sorry, tereo, uh, which means I keep, is about ten times in this short epistle. And so this test that John is presenting is something that he presents over and over and over through his writing. Is this idea of knowing and keeping the Word of God. And so this obedience constitutes objective assurance that one is genuinely saved. So what was going on was these Judaizers were saying that you had to have this, this experience, this religious special revelation from God that only the certain people got. 
And, and John's saying, no, the true, true test is, are you being obedient to his commands? And so John's argument is that obedience is the external visible proof of genuine salvation. And so these false teachers' failure to obey God's commands demonstrated that they were not in actuality saved. And those who have truly experienced the grace of God through the death and resurrection of Christ and have been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit to have fellowship with God will be obedient to the word of God. And John wasn't just coming up with this idea on his own. He was simply repeating what he had heard Jesus Christ himself say to him. Listen to what John recorded Jesus saying in John chapter 14. He says, if you love me, this is Jesus talking, if you love me, you will keep my commands. That's verse 15. A few verses later, he says, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the father who sent me. And then a few verses later, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And then in the next chapter, he once again says, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And so both John and Jesus make it clear that true fellowship with God is demonstrated through obedience to his commands. And so if you want to test to see if you're truly an authentic follower of Christ, you don't need some spiritual experience. But what you need is to see if you, if you hold up your life against the Scriptures, are you being obedient to His commands? Is your, is your life marked by an obedience to the Word of God? Jesus himself was the greatest demonstration of what this looks like. When you hold your life up against Jesus' life, how do you compare? Does your life reflect the life of Christ? But notice how intricately obedience and love are connected. In God's eyes, the two are knit together. Love for God is marked by obedience to his commands. And the greatest command, according to Jesus, are to love God and to love others. And so notice how John links these two together once again in the next few verses. He says, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so the second aspect of this is the idea of love. We have to walk in love of not only God, but of people. We have to walk in love of people. And so the, the primary focus of the moral test is obedience to the command to love. Love is the fulfillment of God's law. True obedience to the law of God is to love. And so, while many people may look at the Old Testament and, and see 
this this disparity between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. They they say you know the Old Testament looks like this vindictive God that's all about judgment and you got to follow the rules. That's not true. That's not the case. If you look, the truth is that love is the underlying theme of the whole Bible. God deemed to create all of creation so that he could love his creation. Yet his creation rebelled against him and chose to live in opposition to him. Yet God still chose to love them. He continually called his creation back to him, and he calls the nation of Israel his bride because he loves them and wanted her to live in fellowship with him. One of the greatest condemnations of nearly all the prophets in the Old Testament was the way they treated one another. Uh, If you look and read the prophets and see how many times this unrighteous living is based on selfishness and and trying to get ahead of one another by taking advantage of one another, and you'll see that this is the great condemnation, that they were failing to love one another. In fact, in the heart of the book of Leviticus lies this gem. Leviticus 19 and verse 18 says, Do not take revenge or bear grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourselves. I am the Lord. And this is what Jesus quotes as the second greatest command. And so this command to love is, is not nothing that's new in time. It's been there from the beginning of the scriptures, nor is it news to the believers to whom John is writing. It's been a command to them from the beginning of their salvation. But this Command to love is not a new one in time, but it is a new, fresh in form because of what Christ has done. Jesus personified love in a new, fresh way. And this is why he said in John chapter 13, Do not, I'm sorry, let me get that. I give you a new command, love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And notice how he emphasizes, I'm going to emphasize this. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. So the love of God is to to flow from us because it's been poured into us. Romans chapter 5, Paul wrote, This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The good news is that it doesn't just go through us, but it's energized by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit changes our love so that it reflects God's love and and gives us the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul says there's no law against these things. They are good, godly things that everybody should aspire to. And he also writes in 1 Thessalonians about brotherly love. You don't need me to write you about this because you yourselves are taught by God, by the Holy Spirit, to love one another. And yet, at the same time, John is making it clear that we he has to reiterate this. He, he's saying, I am writing you a new command, but it's not a new command. It's an old command to love one another because you need to be reminded But he also goes on to say in in verse 9 that a lifestyle of hate is the opposite of the nature of God. And so it's the opposite of the nature of 
those who claim to follow God. And so, a person living defined by hate is living a life that is opposite of what a believer should be living. And so, if you hate anyone for any reason, whether it be the color of their skin, whether it be their their sexual orientation, not saying that it's right, but you can't hate them for it, and, and whether it be that they did something against you, or whether it be anything else, any reason that you could find in your heart to hate someone, if you are hating someone, you are living in opposition to the command of God to love one another. And so because God, God's light is the light of love, we have to walk in the light of love. But notice as he continues... Jesus said, By this everyone will know that you are disciples, if you love one another. John continues in verse 12. He says, I am writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name, not your name, but his name, because of what he has done, that is Jesus. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young man, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. And so here, John says, we need to walk in knowledge and maturity in the one whose name we bear. We need to walk in knowledge and maturity. Notice that John makes it clear that this doesn't happen all at once. You don't just wake up the day after you accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord and suddenly are transformed into some perfect being. You're not just waking up and being a mature believer. We call the Christian life a walk or a journey in becoming more like Christ because it's a change that takes place over time. And so while Christians may mature at different rates, everyone goes through these same stages. And John uses these three terms in, in addressing his, his readers to identify the stages in the process of sanctification that takes place. First he says, little children. Now these little children are those who have a, a basic awareness of God. Uh, they've, they've accepted Christ. They know a little bit about God, but they are needing to learn. We all start off here. Uh, Just as all mankind after Adam and Eve are born physically as an infant and have to grow, uh, when a person accepts Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are born again in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, And it takes time to grow from being a child to being a more mature person. And so... During this stage, the, the new believer is learning what it means to follow Christ. It's also a really dangerous stage because many temptations come upon you. It always seems that right after someone becomes a Christian and starts professing their faith, that's when Satan attacks. He wants to lead them astray while they're still little children. Um, and so it's a very dangerous stage for a new believer, and so as as more mature believers, our job is to come alongside them and to connect them with the body of believers in the church, and to walk alongside them in their journey 
and teach them and help them to remain committed to God. So then once you've been a little child and, and you've grown and you've learned, you, you become more mature and you turn into a young man. This, this would be uh, young men or, or young, young women. This would be the adolescent stage. Um, these are those who have not yet reached the full maturity and experience of knowing God and, and word and through life, but they have sound doctrine. They've, they've received sound teaching and they've experienced through the power of faith overcoming evil by the power of the Spirit. And so they, they've had spiritual maturity and they've grown in, in, in a faith exercise. They've had to exercise their faith enough that it's strong. Uh, yet, at the same time, they're not fully mature. Uh, they're, they're beginning to, to make strides in that, but they haven't reached it. And, and so this would be a good stage for someone to begin teaching or, or maybe discipling someone uh, while still uh, receiving oversight from a more mature believer. But unfortunately, what happens is many Christians stay in one of these first two stages. They either st- remain a child, never getting out to the point of, of teaching others and leading others, but content to sit in a pew uh, and sit and learn and soak, and, but never put wills into action. Never, never start lifting those weights. Or maybe they never have a mature believer that, that takes time to come along beside them and to assist them in becoming more, more mature. Or maybe even they've, they've done those other two things, but they've never been prompted into a time of guided instructional capacity, such as uh, leading a small group or, or leading, a, uh, leading another person to Christ or leading another person in how to grow as a disciple or leading another person in, uh, in teaching a Sunday school class or even maybe in, in preaching and, and pastoral ministry. Uh, I was reading in my personal Bible study this week, uh, or this morning actually, uh, about the... Um, uh, the the scripture where Jesus is saying to pray for workers for the harvest and Oklahoma Baptists are, are concerned because we don't have enough uh, men that are stepping up to pastoral leadership and so there's a, a shortage of pastors in the state of Oklahoma and so and that's true pretty much across the nation uh, but we have failed to be praying for um, young men to be called into that role. And more, uh, or just as importantly, we've not been training them to do so. We haven't been helping them grow in spiritual maturity, and we need to come alongside them and train them and teach them on what it means to be a pastor, what it means to be a church leader, what it means to be a deacon. We need more young men and young ladies stepping up into these roles. And I'm not just talking about physically young. I'm talking spiritually uh, young people who have not grown to the point of maturity. Okay, so we've got children, we've got young men and young women, and then we have what John calls fathers, or I'm going to say here also mothers, uh, because uh, he's writing primarily to, in a culture that emphasizes the man, but uh, it, we, we all know the mother is just as important as, as the father. Um, and so this stage is the most mature that any believer can hope to achieve until the return of Christ. They're not going to be perfect. I'm not saying that they're perfect, but they have a deep knowledge of the eternal God, and they've grown in knowledge, and they've grown in faith. But here's something that I think is key for this, and I want to use this illustration to get you thinking about it. 
Teacher asked little Johnny how old his father was. Little Johnny responded, he's six. The teacher was confused and asked little Johnny how his father could be six when Johnny was six. And Johnny responded, he only became a father when I was born. Now, kind of silly, but there's an important point here. You only become a father or you only become a mother when you have a child. God the Father is the eternal Father. He begot the Son and was not begotten himself. So he is eternally Father. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, but he has not begot any other children, and so he is eternally Son. But if Jesus were to beget a father, he, or to beget a child, he would become a father. And if the father were to have been begotten, then he would be a son. And so God is, has these two roles, uh, these two persons of, of God the Father and God the Son, who is Jesus Christ, uh, that are both static in the fact that they are father and son. As humanity, we can be both fathers and sons, or daughters and, and mothers at the same time. But here's the point. Here's what I'm trying to get at. You only become a spiritual father or a spiritual mother if you have someone for whom you are responsible. As, as a physical father, I am responsible. I have the duty and the privilege of being responsible for the raising of three children. But as, as a spiritual father, it is my privilege and duty to teach others and to lead others in how to live the Christian life. And so one of the ways that I, I do that is by doing things like this, by having this live stream where I, I'm helping you to dig deeper into the Scripture, uh, by walking alongside you in, in ministry, by, by teaching you from the pulpit on Sunday mornings. This is a way that I am able to be a father to, the ch- to those church members. Um, you can be 80 or 90 years old physically and not have a child, and so you're not a father, you're not a mother. In the same way, you can be 80 or 90 years old in, in the spiritual life and still be a young man stage because you've never had that opportunity of being responsible for someone else. And so you're without a child, so you haven't matured to the point of being a father or a mother. Um, and so you, at the same time, you can have been a Christian for only a few years and have progressed through all of the stages and become a father because you you went through a, a system, a cycle of discipleship where you you learned as a, as a child and then you had guided oversight as as a young man or a young woman and then you began to to minister to others on your own as a church father or as a um, or a spiritual father or a spiritual mother. And so our, our goal as believers is to reproduce the Christ-likeness that, that's happening in us in other people. But notice how John segues here from talking about the spiritual maturity uh, into talking about the next passage. The young men have overcome the evil one by the power of the Spirit of God. It's not by their own power. But he says, I have written to you, young man, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. Then he goes on to say, Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. And so, we have to walk in the will of God, not in the lust of the world. We have to walk in the will of God, not the lust of the world. And so, although John often repeats this idea of love and that God is love, he also reveals that there is a type of love that God hates. He, God hates when love is misdirected. God hates when believers love the things of this world. And so while we are to love the people of this world, we are not to love the things of the world. While we are in the world, believers are no longer part of the world. John makes it clear that this that one is either genuinely a Christian marked by love and obedience to God, or one is a non-Christian that's in rebellion against God. And if you're in the latter, then you are in, in love with and enslaved by the world. But the good news is, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. Further, John uh, James writes, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. See, there's, there's no middle ground between these two alternatives. For one who claims to be a Christian, you must either choose God or the world. And so while the world's philosophies and, and ideologies and offerings may appear attractive and appealing, it's a deception. It's, it's true and perverse Nature is that of evil and harm and ruin and satanic. The world system is, has raised itself up against the knowledge of God and it holds men captive. Listen to what Paul wrote here. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so John uses the term lust to describe the way men strongly desire these evil things. He warns us against what the body desires and what the eyes itch to see and what people work hard to acquire. He says we have the lust of the flesh. Uh, the truth is we live in a hedonistic society. Everyone has the freedom to do what they desire. Unfortunately, they don't realize that their desire is enslaved to the lust of the body. And while the body was created as is very good in Genesis 1 and 2. It became corrupted in Genesis 3. And John uses the term here to refer to the rebellious self that is dominated by sin and is in opposition to God. And Satan incites this lust with the things of the world. And he does so through the lust of the eyes. Satan uses the eyes as a strategic avenue to incite wrongful desires. Many sins begin with the eyes, and we'll look at a, a few of those here. In, in the book of Joshua, Achan saw the spoils of war. that God had commanded them they were to destroy everything and not to take any of it. But, but Achan saw it, and he desired it for himself. And he took it, and he hid it. And his sin led to him and his family when his sin was revealed both him and his family were killed as a payment for their sin, for the community of Israel. It began with his eyes. He saw it and he desired it. 
King David saw Bathsheba taking a bath, and his lust led to adultery. It led to murder, and it led to deception and a cover-up. It began with his eyes, the lust of his eyes. And so Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard it said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says, Sin begins with your eyes. If you lust with your eyes, it's going to lead to a lust of your heart, and you're going to lust of the flesh. But notice also, John writes of the lust of possessions. The lust of possessions. People work long, hard hours in order to acquire stuff. We trade most of the hours of most of our days, of most of our weeks, to making money so that we can buy stuff. There's not inherently anything wrong with having stuff, but generally the more a person has, the more they want to flaunt that stuff over other people. And so people generally believe the more stuff or the better stuff that you have, the more you're worth. Worth doesn't come from stuff. Worth comes only from God. But people get stuff and they begin to boast. Listen to what James says. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The reality is that this world with all of its stuff and all of its lust is already passing away. The Christian must not love the satanic world because it's temporary. It's in the continual process of a degeneration and disintegration. It's headed for destruction. Christ came and he, he defeated evil and he, he killed it. And he's reversing the curse, but it's not going to be fulfilled until he returns. And so the, the rebirth of creation began with the resurrection of Christ. He was the first fruits, the scripture tells us. And it will come to fulfillment when he returns. All things will be new. This current world will be gone. And a new, glorious, and eternal one will stand in its place. So in contrast to the temporary world, God's will is permanent and unchangeable. Those who follow God's will abide as God's people forever. So the love of God is the greatest commandment. Jesus told us that. Obedience to his commands reflect that we love God. We are able to express our obedience more fully the more that we know God and the more that we mature spiritually. But we must make a choice to love and obey God rather than loving the worldly system. So will you choose to walk in obedience and love? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the great love that you have for us. God, that we would respond in love to you, that we would love you with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, and with all of our strength. God, I pray that we would show that love through our obedience to your word and a love of others. God, help us to grow in knowledge of you, grow in love of you, grow in spiritual maturity, becoming more like Christ, and help us to abstain from the love of the things of this world. God, we devote ourselves to you, devote ourselves to your word. Fill us with your spirit so that we can live for you. It's in the holy and precious name of Christ, by the power of the spirit, that we pray this. Amen.